The promise of making money from what lies under our land is very attractive to many people, but at what cost to the surface of the land? We'll talk about protecting our water resources right now on The Law Works. From West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Closed captioning for The Law Works is made possible by a grant from the Monongalia County Bar Association to support legal information and education for all West Virginians. The Law Works is made possible by major grants from the West Virginia Attorney General and from Software Systems Incorporated, a West Virginia company established in 1975 which provides high-end support services, programming, and consulting for county government AS400 mid-range computer systems as well as PC-based systems, and by a grant from the West Virginia Bar Foundation. The West Virginia Bar Foundation, the philanthropic organization for West Virginia's legal profession and justice system, promoting public knowledge of the law in West Virginia. West Virginia has it all, coal, oil, gas, limestone, timber, and clean water. But the production of the former can damage the latter. How can we protect our water? My guests are George Kelly, the founder of Environmental Bank and Exchange, LLC, and Patrick C. McGinley, the West Virginia University College of Law, Charles, Judge Charles Hayden II, Professor of Law. Pat, welcome back. And George, Thank welcome. Thank you. For the first time. Thank you. We're talking about cleaning up water. What is it that you do with regard to clean water? Well, we, uh, we are a, what's called a mitigation banker. Um, so what we are doing is actually restoring streams uh, that, that is required uh, to be restored by law for f folks that impact uh, streams. So for example, uh, a coal company that is doing, uh, putting refuge in a valley fill area may have to get a permit in order to uh, do that fill with the Corps of Engineers. And in order to do that permit, they're required to mitigate uh, by law, and it's a Clean Water Act provision that requires that. So you go in and clean up the streams that they damage? Now, it may not be just the coal company, and so this is an interesting dynamic. So we will clean up a stream and sell it to the coal company so that they can get their permit. Um, and that is the, that's the keystone issue there. But a lot of the times it will not be on coal company lands um, because those lands tend to be degraded and there's limited opportunity to do restoration right on those lands. So the coal company damages a stream, maybe even to the point of filling it in so that it's not there anymore. That's not necessarily the stream you fix. That's, cor that's correct. So you may, because the coal company may be obligated to fix that stream on the, on the mining site at any rate under another act through the reclamation ob obligations. So typically that's done separately, but as a result of the impacts, uh, they have to restore a stream elsewhere to, within a region, typically within a watershed zone. To quote a very wise man once who said, I'm confused. <laughs> Pat, can you help me out with my confusion? 
Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> do, do the best you, you're a teacher, you can do that. Uh, well, with regard to coal, coal mining and specifically uh, uh, the issue of filling streams, uh, uh, there's a net loss of, of streams. Uh, this is very controversial, not only in West Virginia, but around the country, the, the issue of mountaintop removal mining. And there's a net loss of streams. And, and uh, uh, the idea of stream mitigation uh, is one that's a, a positive one. If you're gonna lose streams, uh, there is something positive being done, not on the mine site, but somewhere else. Uh, streams that have been previously degraded could have been by mining, it could have been by uh, forestry or any number of uh, possibilities. And uh, so uh, there's not a total loss of headwater streams. And again, that's a controversial issue. But there, there is something positive that comes out of that and, and that's the kind of work that, that they're doing. And uh, uh, it's not the only context, however. It's, uh, uh, it gives gives something back. It uh, attempts to repair damage, to allow uh, uses that, uh, if mitigation work wasn't done, uh, uh, the area wouldn't be uh, commercially useful. So it's a it's a positive thing. It's outside the scope of the argument about uh, the filling streams and mountaintop removal. One of the a phrase that I have seen used when talking about this kind of work, and you you may have used it, you alluded to it at the very least, George, was uh, there's to be no net loss in these streams. So if you've got a stream that can be restored partially, the company that damaged it still owes somebody clean streams somewhere else to make up the total. Yeah, and it's a, the other element that's kind of built into this permitting process is before you even get into mitigation, you've got to avoid and minimize. So the coal company, for example, would have to show that they are avoiding uh, and minimizing their impacts. And then only after they conclude the Army Corps of Engineers, which is the regulating entity typically on these issues, only after they conclude that do they say you can mitigate. And then in that mitigation issue, um, that's the, the scenario where we typically will go restore another stream. And the question that's that arises is what, and what, what is a no net loss, um, and how do you measure that? And that's something that uh, West Virginia has been wrestling with, and I think we're evolving uh, in that state. But we, in turn, will put together a large scale stream restoration and sell it to that coal company and perhaps other companies that have impacts in that same region. So the coal company does what they're required to do as well as they can do it uh, to the, the best standard available, I guess, uh, is the standard. But there's more that needs to be done, so they have to go find another stream someplace that they can restore to reasonably good health to make up what they weren't able to do on their own property. That's, that's correct. And you help with that. We do, and we work with a lot of landowners uh, in this state <clears throat> on, on, in that regard, and I think it's a really interesting dynamic because it's an opportunity for landowners in the state of West Virginia uh, to now get value for quarters along their streams and allow us to restore those, because we typically will pay uh, for the opportunity to do this work. And uh, so it's a great opportunity that wasn't there uh, in a value proposition for that landowner that's pretty unique. Now we've been talking a lot about coal, but it's not just 
coal in, the coal industry that can damage water resources. It could be timber, it could be any sort of extractive industry, oil and gas, limestone, sandstone, if we have any that we're mining, that does damage to water supplies. Department of Highway, for example, is another big impactor. So uh, they are a big buyer and an impactor as well. So it's anybody that affects those waters of the United States uh, that's required to get a permit, and then after avoidance and minimization, then mitigating. So in essence, as I understand it, what you do is you will go out and find a stream that needs to be cleaned up and can be cleaned up. You will buy from the landowner of that stream the right to come in and clean it up. You'll pay the landowner some money. And then you will sell the credit you get for doing that to the, to the in this case, the mining industry. And hopefully they pay you more for the credits that you were able to create than you had to pay to get to do it. Yeah, hopefully. Um, and uh, that's a good that's a good point, uh, Dan. On the uh, hopefully, but um, that's the way business is done. Uh, yes. Buy low, sell high. But the the concept of mitigation banking means that we go out and restore in advance of impacts in areas where we think there's a lot of activity. For example, the Upper Ohio watershed in in West Virginia, or the Cheat or, or Tiger Valley watersheds in in uh, you know near Morgantown. And in, in that instance, uh, we will go out in advance and try to do a large-scale uh, system restoration, get credit for that, and then ultimately sell uh, to the, the coal or the Department of Highway or oil and gas folks. Um, it, the great thing about this is it's a voluntary market-based approach. So in terms of our work with landowners, um, it's, 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 an, it's a scenario where the, the uh, landowners are not required to do it. It's an option for them and they can get value, and so we, we truly try to make it an economic proposition. We're talking about protecting our water sources. My guests are George Kelly, the founder of Environmental Bank and Exchange, and Patrick C. McGinley, the West Virginia University College of Law, Judge Charles Hayden II, Professor of Law. I'm Dan Ringer, and this is The Law Works. So you say it's a voluntary thing, there's no law that requires this to be done? Not, there's a law that requires the coal company to buy the credit if they, go, if they impact. But in, as it relates to the, the supply side, the landowners that we're working with in terms of restoration, there's no obligation on their part uh, to, to, to work with us other than if, if, it, if it meets their family's needs and there's an economic proposition. Um, so that, that's, so you, have to, you have to have the, demand, the supply and demand side. On the demand side, it is regulated. On the supply side, it's not required of a landowner. We try to make it a, a voluntary market-based approach. But if you're going to mediate a stream, there has to be something wrong with it to begin with. Correct. So, so what is an impaired stream? What does, what does that mean? A, the, an impaired stream could be a, a lot of things. So typically when you look at a stream, it's both, it's, there's physical, there's chemical and biological issues. So from a physical standpoint, I think you could look around the state and see multiple streams that have been in, impacted in terms of sediment on the banks where they're incised, where there's basically uh, the, the stream has uh, slowly eroded into the valley and basically you have banks that are almost vertical uh, that ultimately erode into the creeks. That's, that's the physical side. The, the chemical is you know, dissolved oxygen, pH, uh, conductivity and other issues, sediment uh, that are, uh, affect uh, a lot of the streams. And then the biological side is fisheries, and, and these macroinvertebrates, these small bugs that you see in, in the creeks, 
those can be also impaired as well. So you look at all three of those factors in determining what's an impaired stream. And West Virginia has a very progressive approach to looking at this. And there are a lot of impaired streams. When we talk about impaired streams, if you're a layperson, what we're talking about streams where uh, people think, well, the bugs in the stream, what's the big deal? Well, that's the, that's the building block of all life in the stream up through f uh, fish life and, uh, and plant life. And so the, these streams are seriously degraded, uh, but for a lot of reasons. Uh, and, and there's significant value in a community uh, to have a, a really a clean stream, not a degraded stream, uh, a stream where you, you, could, you could fish, you could swim, and so forth. Uh, and uh, over the last more than a century, a, var a variety of activities, mining, oil and gas, uh, uh, industrial development, uh, streams have been degraded. So there, there's a lot of opportunity out there to turn something that is not useful, that is actually a detriment to a community, to something that's positive. I do, I do want to uh, say, though, uh, <coughs> uh, about uh, coal mining, there is a debate about the, the whether mitigation really there's no net loss. Uh, there are many uh, who say uh, mitigation does result in no net loss, and there are also many that say mitigation is not going to recreate headwater streams uh, in, in the coal fields. And I'm really am among them, but that's a different issue. The issue of uh, constructively going in, using the market to, uh, to repair and, and uh, mitigate prior damage and make uh, something useful that wasn't before is a great idea. It makes sense, it's a win-win sort of situation. That, that idea, though, of compensating for things that you've damaged or that we've lost permeates the law generally. You get in a car wreck, you file a lawsuit or you settle a claim, it doesn't mean you're as good as new, it just means somebody gave you some money That's to right. compensate you as best we can. And we fix these streams in hopes that we haven't damaged the environment too much. But if you bury a stream, the stream's buried, you're never gonna get it back, right. at least not within our lifetimes. Right. So the theory on this, uh, Pat, is the notion of avoidance minimization, that that analysis has to occur at that point in time. Do we have a headwater system that really can't be restored uh, from a no net loss uh, dynamic? And then, uh, then the other thing is, you know, in terms of West Virginia, I will say, there's been years of litigation that has driven a very pretty uh, prescribed standard that looks at a functional uplift between a before and after of a stream uh, that it shows representative uh, uh, types of uh, criteria that, that is a way to judge whether there's a no net loss. And I think it's one of the better standards out there. And, and we've got some photos, for example, uh, of some stream uh, where, there, for example, we've got uh, a scenario where there's a cattle crossing uh, afterwards. There, or this is the cattle crossing before, um, and this is a situation where you're you're obviously getting a lot of shear stress. Uh, cattle are obviously uh, impacting the vegetation on the on each side of the riparian zone. Um, and riparian zone is where the water comes from, or where the water is. That's on either side of the top of bank of that stream. Uh, you're not. You know, typically, these are forested. You know, the, historically, these were forested systems. So now, what we've got is you know grasslands, or otherwise. Um, now, what we would do in, the, in this instance, and we'll show you the cattle crossing afterwards. 
Um, so this we, is the same area after you have been in and worked on it? Same area after we worked on it, and then this is a, where there's a cow on the stream. Um, and well, then, that looks nice. I mean, the cow's <laughs> taking a little bath there. And yeah, it's, and uh, they're one of the biggest nutrient providers uh, around. I, I don't know this, the exact <laughs> nutrient <laughs> provider. <laughs> I don't know the exact uh, analysis of this, but uh, the cattle can produce a, a fair bit of, uh, of nutrients. Nutri in, in, you in mean the, the cow poops and pees in the stream, right? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> this indeed. is public television. We can tell it the way it is. That's called manure. Yeah. Manure, okay. Um, so we, we, we will fence out the cattle. Uh, we will uh, restore the streams, and, and particularly the stability of the banks. What you want to do is have the stream actually reconnect with the floodplain. And this happens a lot of streams where they've lost connection with the floodplain. So when we restore, we're looking for that overbank flood event to basically take, in, take away from the volume and energy of that stream and also uh, have that floodplain serve as a kind of a denitrifying uh, system. We, we ought to mention in, the, in that previous slide it looked like the ground had been denuded. That's immediately after you had done the work before the grasses and whatever had come back. It's not always pretty immediately afterwards um, and as you say this is a shot um, where there is uh, vegetative growth in the early stages. And what happens is we are typically required to replant forested buffers. Um, and, but in the early stages, the understory, uh, is, you will also see that growth as well until such time as the canopy of that forest is produced and ultimately becomes a forest. Can we go back to uh, picture five there? So we can see this area. This is the area before the mediation. Exactly. Mitigation, I'm sorry. Right. And this is afterwards. You know, to a layperson looking at that, it looked better before than it does in the after photograph. Why is that? Well, I think, I think this notion of cleaning up a stream where you have everything, grass mowed to the banks, um, where you have it stream channelized, you're cleaning that out, that's not, actually not a very good thing for the stream. Um, and as I say, historically, we had most of our riparian zones or that area t at the top of the bank of the creeks in forest. Um, in addition, those creeks, uh, that creek doesn't have any connection with the floodplain. Um, and so, but that looks neater to somebody in, in the eyes of somebody who, who's, who wants good aesthetics. But it's not about aesthetics, it's about science. As I mentioned, the physical, chemical, biological components are what we're trying to restore. So we're, talking, this we're talking about nature. And uh, while you're, you're not going to restore it to exactly how it was uh, before humans arrived, uh, they do a very good job of, uh, of uh, taking steps that, that will return the, the area to a, a natural environment where everything fits together. And that's, you know, mowing grass isn't nature. Uh, that's human inner. So I can stop cutting my lawn and just let it go back and have a clean conscience. Of <laughs> but, but I will say, you know, one of the things we, we didn't talk about, so that scenario where you saw that vegetative growth, uh, you saw the before and after, that landowner, in that instance, it, for, with every mitigation project we have, we have to put either a, an easement or restrictive covenant on that land. So that's to the benefit of the state. So there, um, is, there is some loss to the landowner because the stream has been cleaned up or mitigated. And I think there's, it's arguable whether there's a loss because we will be paying that landowner for that right to restore the stream and also that right to put the restrictive covenant or the easement on that land. 
we're only talking about the buffer zones typically. So we're only talking about areas in the floodplain associated with that creek. How, how big typically are these buffer zones? 50 feet on either side is the typical. It can go as, as much as 250 feet on either side, but typically it's 50 feet on either side. So there's a stream that runs through my property, let's yeah. say, and that stream is impaired somehow. It, it, it may look just fine, but it's not a healthy stream and maybe not healthy for me and my family. You come in and fix that, but you tell me then there's a right-of-way, an, e an easement, a restrictive covenant that keeps me from doing certain things on either side of that stream. What kind of things am I not so allowed you, to do? So you're not allowed to ditch and drain. You're not allowed to bring cattle in there. You're not allowed to cut the forest, that, the vegetative area that we're uh, replanting. Um, those are the main limitations. And you're not allowed to develop. Um, which you probably wouldn't do at any rate. There's a lot of uh, rights that you're really not giving up in a floodplain. Well, and you're not allowed to build uh, tanks that hold uh, uh, chemicals that are used in coal preparation. I mean, what we're talking about, buffer zone, the West Virginians will recall how close uh, those chemical tanks of Freedom Industries were uh, to the Elk River. And it, it's that zone on either side of a stream where activities that are conducted there can cause serious damage to our waters, and and that's uh, th that is the zone where they're performing their mitigation. In the Oak River circumstance: if you took the old children's game, if you took one giant step from the tank that leaked, you'd fall in the Oak River. It was it was that right. close. The zones that you're talking about would have moved that tank back 50 to 250 feet if that was an applicable situation. That's right, so if you had a covenant on there as part of a mitigation project, you would not be able to put a tank in that zone, and that's, that's an important issue. Well, you know, that, that sounds really good uh, for me. I, I want my stream cleaned, I want my land to be usable, but I'm not gonna insist about parking my cows next to the stream. But what, 20, 30, 100 years from now, my descendants or the people who have bought the land from me say, you know, this would be a great place to put up apartment buildings. And we'll just build a tunnel there and, and run that stream under all this uh, and sell apartments. Can they do that? Well, I would say, uh, first off, I would argue it's hard to build apartments in any floodplain. So I would say that clearly you're not going to be building uh, apartments in a floodplain, theoretically. And, you know, that well, I tell that where, to the folks in New Orleans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. But then... Then there's another scenario in terms of being able to work with a landowner. You're not just, we go in early on and say, let's look at your land use options as a landowner. And to the extent that there are areas outside of the buffer, you can do whatever you can do under law. So we're not prescribing that use at all. So the issue really relates to typically trying to plan for road crossings to the extent there might be future development, uh, potential uh, oil and gas uh, pipeline crossings to the extent you're in those zones. Those, are, those can be allowed if you plan it as part of the process early on. That kind of requires you to uh, predict the future a little bit, though, doesn't it? But I think it's, you know, one of the things we say is if you uh, allocate a certain number of crossings and say we'll allocate those as part of the plan and assume uh, that those are there, those are typically all you're going to be needing uh, in that zone at any rate. I mean, it really is a crossing question. The, the question of location is sometimes the issue. You know, is that location absolutely right for what may be needed in 50 years. Typically you know where, where you're going to go because you know where topography lies, you know what makes sense. So there are typical areas you're able to pinpoint. 
Well, there, there are also uh, uh, incentives and advantages to combine mitigation with uh, land trust or conservation trust, uh, which are WVU College of Law is uh, engaged in. We've got a land use and uh, sustainability clinic, and they're working on developing conservation easements uh, and land trusts throughout West Virginia. And there, you get a tax break uh, if you're protecting land uh, from development. So if you combine that with mitigation, that's a win-win. My concern in, in identifying this topic to do for this program was that you guys kind of have a hard job. You're going to show up on somebody's front porch one day and say, you've got a stream out here that really needs some help. We'd like to help you with that. And you're going to be met with some skepticism. So uh, if somebody does show up on your front porch, listen to them. There may be something of great advantage to you in all of that. George, Pat, gentlemen, thank you for coming in. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you also for being with us. On behalf of the Law Works, I'm Dan Ringer. Good evening. If you would like to suggest a topic for a future The Law Works show, or if you're a school teacher and would like to receive a DVD of this show for classroom use, send us an email to thelawworks at comcast.net or visit us on Facebook. On The Law Works website at thelawworks.org, you'll find a listing of recent The Law Works programs, additional information about this show's topic, and video of this and recent shows. You can also find The Law Works programs on YouTube and iTunes. The Law Works is produced in cooperation with the Office of the West Virginia Attorney General, the West Virginia Bar Foundation, the Mountain State Bar, the Monongahela County Bar Association, and the West Virginia University College of Law. The Law Works is made possible by major grants from the West Virginia Attorney General and from Software Systems Incorporated, a West Virginia company established in 1975 which provides high-end support services, programming, and consulting for county government AS400 mid-range computer systems as well as PC-based systems, and by a grant from the West Virginia Bar Foundation. The West Virginia Bar Foundation, the philanthropic organization for West Virginia's legal profession and justice system, promoting public knowledge of the law in West Virginia. Additional support for the Law Works is provided by the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals. From West Virginia Public Broadcasting, 